Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, September 27th. We begin with a look at the aftermath of Hurricane Fiona on the Maritimes. We speak with Professor Anya Waite from the Ocean Frontier Institute to discuss what lessons we can learn from this devastating storm. Next, we examine the current housing crisis in Canada from very low inventory to rising interest rates, making home ownership incredibly difficult for those looking to break into the market. We tackle the topic with Ray Sullivan from the Canadian Housing and Renewal Association. How does Canada rank as a country? Well, according to a survey from website US News, we've made our way into the top five list of best countries to call home. We get details on the criteria the survey considered from Morgan Felchner, executive editor of U.S. News. And finally, like it or not, winter is coming. We catch up with Michael Lopez of Reliance Home Comfort for a fall to-do list in order to prep your home for the cooler weather ahead. What lessons can we learn from Hurricane Fiona and what can be done to prepare for future hurricanes? Joining us with some expert insight is Anya Waite, CEO and Scientific Director of Ocean Frontier Institute, Professor and Associate VP Research at Dalhousie University as well. Good morning to you, Anya. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Good to be here. So, I mean, Fiona tore through the Maritimes, obviously, sadly, so much destruction and and lives lost. Were we prepared enough for this storm, though, do you think, in advance, knowing what was coming? I think we're getting better. There's always some unexpected elements. Um, uh, Certainly, we're getting a lot better at predicting the storm track, so we knew pretty well where uh, Fiona was going to make landfall, and I think that's super useful. It was... the you know, Halifax municipality didn't get direct hit. It went east of us, um, probably saved a lot of infrastructure. Um, but going forward, I think we don't really know enough about how the changing ocean is driving the accelerated um, intensity and longevity of hurricanes. And, and we do need to know much more about that going forward. You, you say we need more information, but can we glean from that statement and from uh, previous years that we're seeing an increase in intensity of hurricanes and tropical storms? Is that a fair statement? <laughs> Yeah, it's super fair. And what's happening is they're also longer lived because when they hold, they suck up more moisture. A warmer ocean shoots more moisture and energy up into the hurricane as it's forming. And then that hurricane takes a lot longer to decay once it hits land. And so we're seeing um, hurricanes penetrating deeper into the continent than they used to, um, even potentially reaching Ontario, for example. Whereas in the day, I mean, I grew up here in Halifax. We didn't actually care about the hurricane season that was something that you saw on the news you know flailing palm trees on the six o'clock news yeah, yeah. it wasn't something that happened here um trees falling down power out for days uh, we just didn't see it so you can you we have that sense that they're increasing in intensity and frequency and in fact yes yes they are so, I mean, it's been a gradual increase in the temperature in the ocean. So, I mean, potentially could it have been worse? Is it, is it all about that, that increase in the, the temperature of the water and how it changes the storm that arrives? That's, that's the number one. And, of course, what we're seeing is a sort of an accelerating change. So we're getting warmer faster now. And that's a, what's a little bit scary because how much faster is hard to predict unless you have a huge amount of information coming from the ocean, which is the big climate engine. And we don't really have a coordination system internationally to pull all that information from the open ocean to deliver the kind of um, information we need, you know, on the ground. Uh, I mean, even for Fiona, there were a few, there were some strange things. There were a lot of thunderstorms, for example, in Fiona. We got lightning strikes and trees almost more than we had trees blown down. Mm. So where does that, you know, 
um, come from. People were talking about colored lightning, red lightning. Um, and and then we also had this, this big um, cold trough to the west, which I think really changed how Fiona operated. I think the municipalities west of Halifax had drastically lower winds and we're almost you almost had a sense of disappointment people living out on the coast saying well we didn't see much whereas up in newfoundland they had these horrible extremes so there's still a lot we don't know and one of the concerns that we have is that as these hurricanes continue to accelerate in frequency intensity and longevity we could be seeing something called a category six hurricane which has not yet occurred but if they do occur, they're powerful enough to, for example, peel the bark off trees. Now, that means a whole different level of preparation that we're going to need to have to withstand those storms. So we really need to know whether they're coming. So many intangibles, Anya, and, you know, so much to learn. But as far as, you know, I know we're still in the cleanup phase in the Maritimes. What lessons can we learn when it comes to preparedness? Because if we're going to be dealing with this, what further do we have to do? Well, I think understanding, getting good predictions of intensity is really important because, okay, it's, we're, we're getting the storm tracks much better now, but the intensity really matters. So, for example, if, if it's going to hit as a Category 4 or 5, that's a completely different level of preparation that we have to do than if it's um, hitting as a Category 1 or 2. I mean, when I say hit, I mean hit land. Um, and that intensity is not always easy to predict because we don't have enough ocean data. So getting those ocean data together, delivering them as information to hurricane centers so that they can make better predictions, um, that's kind of a big international job. We are good at observing our own coastal zones. Most countries are good at observing their own coastal zones. But when you get beyond national jurisdiction, that open ocean, the deep blue ocean, that's much harder because you need to pull nations together internationally which is what the Ocean Frontier Institute is now trying to do, but it's a lot of work. And we work through the UN. That's a lot of talk that has to happen. And we want to pivot and see action happening um, as soon as we can. Professor, you're one of the co-authors in theconversation.com about the lessons from Fiona. And I see that there's some imagery from a drone that was up above Category 4 Hurricane Fiona. Is that something new? And and what kind of information can you glean from a drone, for example, about these storms and and what's to come? Oh, that footage is super awesome. I'd really urge your your, uh, listeners to have a look at sail drone um, online. What they did, there are sail drones. They literally sail on the surface of the ocean. And they have a stiff sail, and they're um, they're like a robot, so you, there's nobody on them. And these they're called hurricane drones because they're steered directly into hurricanes to get as much information from inside the hurricane as you can. And that's really really important because it's that heat right in the center of the hurricane that's shooting upwards that determines the intensity. So getting those that footage, they have some video footage, and um, they also measured the surface temperature, which helps. We really need the temperature all the way down because it's not just the surface temperature that determines how much shoots up into the hurricane, but very cool stuff. And if that kind of stuff was done globally and linked together through an international system, you know, something like an international space station where nations are working together, mm-hmm. it would transform how we do this job. Well, at least we know the path we should be on. Whether or not we can get there is another story. Thanks so much for your time, Anya. We appreciate it. Great talking to you. And um, congratulations on that weather. Send some this way. (laughs) Thank you. We will. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.
That's Anya Waite, CEO and Scientific Director for the Ocean Frontier Institute, Professor and Associate VP of Research at Dalhousie University. And again, it's Sail Drone, all one word, S-A-I-L-D-R-O-N-E, Sail Drone, and it's at Sail Drone. If you want to check out some of the footage, it's pretty cool. Is Canada in the midst of a housing crisis and what needs to be done to address a decline in housing inventory? Joining us to discuss this morning is Ray Sullivan, Interim Executive Director with the Canadian Housing and Renewal Association. Good morning to you, Ray. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sue. Thanks for having me. Okay, so, I mean, is Canada in a housing crisis? Yeah, I think that's the question that we don't even need to ask, right? I think everybody knows that. We see it in our streets. We feel it. All of us have folks in our in our families, in our neighborhood, who are affected by this. Or housing, Ray, but, you know, here's the deal. This is something we can't snap our fingers and have new housing, you know, in the next uh, week, two weeks, even even couple of months to meet this demand. So how do we go about this? That's exactly right. Look, and, and, and good housing always starts with a blueprint, right? With a good blueprint plan. That's what we've come together to do as the Canadian Housing and Renewal Association, to work with government to provide a blueprint. We've got 27 recommendations under this blueprint to, to really, you know, make life fairer, more inclusive, more affordable for everyone. And that, that starts with housing. Okay, so give us a couple of your recommendations then. Obviously, we know more needs to be done. What, are, what is the biggest hope or hopes? Yeah, so part of what we're focusing on is, is some of the gaps in the national housing strategy. And that strategy is, is, is five years old now from the federal government. There's pieces that are, that are, that are missing. The biggest one right off the bat is the, the real lack of a focus on, on urban, rural, and indigenous housing solutions. And we see that those those outcomes for Indigenous folks living in urban centres are far worse than for the non-Indigenous population. And five years into the national housing strategy, we have not seen a dedicated response from the federal government on this. There's no coincidence we're talking with you today, Ray. Today is Housing on the Hill Day and the Canadian Housing and Renewal Association. Uh, your organization going to be addressing it with some partners as well. What do you hope to accomplish uh, with this meeting that you're going to be having on Parliament? Yeah, and, you know, we've got over 50 experts from across the country who've gathered in Ottawa to bring those housing messages onto Parliament Hill. And there's a buzz in the room. I don't know if you can hear the crowd behind me right now, but we're we're, we're pretty excited about this. Um, and we've got folks from Calgary, from, from Horizon Housing, from the, from the Calgary Housing Company as well, We've got dozens of meetings set up with, with members of Parliament throughout the day. And we really want to get them to focus on the, the, the priorities of delivering that housing solutions to the folks who are hurting right now. So, I mean, Ray, is the problem that the, the population growth is, is, you know, outstripping the amount of housing that we have? Or is it economically based, the, the issue here? I think it's both, really. You know, and... And there's no question that there is a housing supply problem. Um, we've not caught up in, in, in terms of being able to deliver the supply of housing that Canadians need. There's also got to be a focus on affordability. So folks who are getting squeezed right out of the market right now who cannot replace the homes that they own. You know, 17% of renters are in core housing need right now across the country. That means they can't afford the home they're living in now, and they definitely can't afford to replace it. When it comes to Indigenous people in Canada, it's even worse. It's one in four people who are in poor housing. We want to focus the attention where people are struggling the most. We know, Ray, you know, from the past three years that supply chain issues have hit all corners of the globe, not just Canada. 
And we know that inflation is something that is in all four corners of the globe, not just Canada. What about when it comes to housing and accessibility? Is this a Canadian-specific issue, or are, you, are we seeing something similar in other nations? It's a good question. We are seeing the same kinds of things across the country, and it's not just the supply issue anymore. There's economic circumstances in the broader economic picture that's leading to increases in interest rates, increases in, in, in cost inflation. As well, I've talked to, to developers, both in the private and the nonprofit sectors. They're talking about putting projects up on the shelf to sort of wait until the conditions improve. But Canadians across the country are feeling the pain right now, and we can't afford to delay our response. We've been talking about housing issues for decades now, Ray. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, why... Why is this different now, and how do we find a solution that actually will change things and change the trajectory of where we're headed? Because, you know, conversation can only go so far, but that's all we've really been able to do of late. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Sue. We've been talking about this for, for a very long time, but I think more and more people across the country are really feeling it as a, as a crisis right now. And look, circling back to the National Housing Strategy, it's been five years. The landscape has changed a lot in those five years. Um, and so the government response has to change, the kinds of conditions that are laid out to make life more affordable for people. Ray, thanks for your discussion this morning. Thanks for your time, and uh, good luck uh, with your efforts today. Thank you very much, Andrew. Appreciate the call. It's Ray Sullivan, Interim Executive Director of Canadian Housing and Renewal Association. We did get a text in here that said uh, immigration was way too high and nowhere to put them. Cost is out of control. It's simple. I don't know if it is that simple because we've had this issue in in some way. It depends on what group you're in. Maybe this is a larger issue because mm. now it's the, the people in the middle that are having trouble. Before it would be lower income, uh, obviously, but it's everybody. That gap is why? Is, I mean, the gap is, is smaller, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I know that, you know, you uh, have uh, friends as well and I have friends and we have people who have relocated and they had a hard time last summer, you know, uh, the, the competing offers and, and such. This has been yes. a crazy, I, I'm speaking on behalf of Calgary, a crazy time. You have friends who are realtors. Mm-hmm. They were talking about 25 cars lined up and the realtor would go down and hear from every, because it was COVID, they weren't inside the houses, hear from every car, what's your offer? Literally. What's your offer? Literally. What's your offer? And, and, and it, you know, so it's been very difficult. And then if you've tried, and I mean, I've, you know, I've talked about this. I, I talked openly to you about this in the sense that we redid our mortgage and, uh, you know, I've had mortgages for 22 years. I've moved a lot. This mm-hmm. is bottom line. I've moved quite a bit. And this was the most difficult, not not so much the renewal, but five years ago we moved into our place. And then we re-upped because the rates were fantastic. Good stuff to do. Let's get involved with this. Let's re-up. I've never had more of a difficult time when it comes to the paperwork surrounding a mortgage in my entire life than the past four oh, years. Tell me about it. And I'm I, not 20 years old. I'm I've had mortgages. It, I'm living it right now. And it's unbelievable how much paperwork and red tape and questions and the most inane little details that you think really shouldn't have any effect, and yet they do. Yeah. And you think, hey, you know what? I might, I might want a $400,000 house. Well, the mortgage brokers, and I'm, it's it's been changing, and it changes almost weekly, so you have to check with the mortgage professional. But... You want four hundred? You got to like try to get five hundred because you might need that extra mm. when it comes to. There might be a competing offer. Uh, you know the inventory is low. Be. You might have to spend more. I know you want four. You've qualified because if you're being responsible, you don't go to the max that they recommend that you're approved exactly. For. 
it's just a bizarre time. So Im- immigration, yeah, I mean, it's probably part of the equation. I don't think I think that's there it, are, are yeah. so many factors, but, you know, as we talk, just talked to him about, talking isn't solving it and hasn't for decades. I don't know if there's, I don't really even know if there is an answer at this point. Yeah, it's going to take some time. It's going to be a rough patch for us all, I think. And uh, it doesn't matter if you're moving up or trying to get in. Where does Canada rank globally when it comes to the best countries? Joining us with details on the 2022 U.S. News Best Countries Rankings is Morgan Felchner, U.S. News Executive Editor. Good morning to you, Morgan. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Well, let's get right to the meat of the matter. Our nation, Canada. Uh, Where did it land on the 2022 rankings? Canada ranked number three this year, so so a very strong showing for your for your nation. Wow, is that higher or lower than previous years, Morgan? It's a little bit lower than last year. Last year you were number one, actually, <sighs> but still you've you've maintained a really really strong position, um, and and really it really shows that the global perceptions of your country are very very strong. All right, before we get to uh, you know the top five. What are the attributes? What are you looking for when it comes to these rankings? What goes into the, the study? So we actually, it's a, it's a global perception survey. We surveyed nearly 18,000 people in 85 countries, and we have a, a, a number of different metrics um, we look for when, when we're considering this. So we have things like social purpose and the, the economy, um, all sorts of different things that people are surveyed on. We ask them what, how strongly they agree when, when you compare it to a certain country. And then we take that um, and we weight it based on some, some World Bank and UN data. And then we come out with our rankings. That's pretty impressive. I mean, obviously, number one is the bomb, but, you know, still to be in that top three, that's <laughs> very impressive when you look and talk to people around the world. So how many countries are actually ranked? And, and can you break down that top five for us then? Sure. So this year we ranked 85 countries. That's up from last year. We used some some UN and World Bank data to get to the to, to meet the criteria of or to come up with our criteria for how many countries we rank. So out of 85 countries, Switzerland is number one, Germany is number two, Canada is number three, the United States is number four, and Sweden is number five. Um, we there were a few shifts. In, in the top five this year, obviously Canada went from number one to number three. The United States returned to the top five um, after last year dropping out, and Switzerland returned to the number one spot. It has been the number. It has been number one in the past couple of years as well. Canada bumped Switzerland out last year, but Switzerland bested them um, this year. Wow, incredible stuff! Mm-hmm. It looks like a fluid list, and it does change year to year. Thank you so much for your time, Morgan. Thanks for having me. Morgan Felchner, U.S. News Executive Editor. It's it's fine to have these surveys and these rankings, Sue, but I guess what it gets down to is uh, what we love about our nation. And, hey, maybe if you if you could live somewhere else or maybe if you had to live somewhere else, Ooh. which country would that be and why? How do you see it with an advantage over Canada, mm. the greatest country on the face of the earth? Well, I, just top of mind, I'd say I'd move to Italy tomorrow. Because, but that's food and wine. So yeah, what? That has nothing Stop to do with the economy me. and but what you do for a living. Other there. than that, I I think I do think we live in one of the best countries in the world. I think the people here make it almost so, uh, and you know, just the landscape from coast to coast. Look at what we have. Look what we have to offer. I think this is an amazing country. Opportunities we have them here. You look at right now how many jobs are open. You have opportunities for sure. 
health care. It always gets down to that. And I yeah. know that some people will say ad nauseum, oh, well, it's not as good as it used to be. Or, Well, have you compared what other people have? Have you taken a look at the other countries? Mm-hmm. Yeah, some European nations for sure. But our neighbors to the south, boy, you break an arm down there, it could bankrupt you depending on, you know, what your situation yeah. is. For so many reasons. Would you rather live in Canada or the United States? I'll pick Canada a million good, times over. Thank you. And I, you know, I really, I really like visiting the U.S., and I, I do like the concept. However, it is much more lone wolf. You are kind of on your own. You're almost on an island when you're in the States. I mean, they talk about the land of the free, uh, but you're free to sw- sink or swim. And some people here would say, okay, well, of course, that's the, the free market, and we should do the same here. We shouldn't be, quote-unquote, socialist. There are protections in place, and I think we did see that during the COVID-19 pandemic. We take care of one another, and perhaps you'd miss out on that down in the States, I think. You've heard uh, meteorologist Tiffany Lise's forecast. It's a little bit of summer, at least in the short term, but don't take it for granted. Enjoy it. Just around the corner is some colder temperatures. you got to get your home ready for fall and beyond. And with some help, we're joined by Michael Lopez, operational manager at Reliance Home Comfort. Good morning to you, Michael. Morning. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for joining us and taking the time this morning. So Reliance Home Comfort, you folks, this is what you do. You make sure people are prepared. You want people to have their home, you know, in tip-top shape. So, so do you have a checklist for us, those things we should look at in the fall? Absolutely, I do. The first thing you're going to want to do is start outside of the home, and that's cleaning your gutters and trimming any tree branches. Get up on a ladder, take a look at the gutters, and clean them out. Once we start to get snow accumulation, you want to make sure that all the flowing water is free to come down your home and avoid damage. And while you're up there, take a look at your tree branches. As snow starts to come down and get heavier on those branches, they could start scraping your roof, and that's costly repairs, right? Very, very good points. All those things we need to think about. And then, you know, obviously the outside, there's lots to do. What else do you have in terms of tips outside before we go inside the home, Michael? I would say take a look at your window wells. If you've got basements with windows and they have little wells outside of them, take a look and see if they have any sort of debris such as leaves. Leaves will act almost like a pool liner and pool all of the water in those window wells. So clean them out. Let's talk about, you know, besides the exterior of our house, our detectors, uh, you know, our safety features within the house. Let's talk about checking those. Yeah, you're going to want to go inside and check your CO detectors. Now that we're turning our furnaces on and all the windows are closed, you want to make sure that your home and your family is safe. Check your CO detectors. There should be a test button on them. Make sure that they're working. And while you're testing those, your fire alarms as well. Just give them a yearly annual check. It's super important to keeping your family safe. Water it can be a problem outside. You talk about the window wells, but certainly water inside can really be a problem through the winter. I had my neighbor's house, uh, you know, we've seen the damage that it can do when a pipe bursts and there's nobody home or that sort of thing. What do we need to do to prevent any issues on the inside when it comes to, you know, the water damage potentially? Oh, yeah, we don't want that happening. So you want to drip your faucets. Keep an eye on the temperature. If it ever starts to go below freezing, dripping your faucets and helping that water keep moving can help prevent mean, them freezing faucets? up in your pipes. What do you mean by that? So you're going to want to turn on a any faucet around the house so that it's just dripping or a gentle stream. That's enough to keep the water moving through the pipes and prevent them from freezing. What's interesting, uh, Michael, is what you've told us so far uh, perhaps we can do ourselves. It's not like you're shaking us down for some extra bucks. <laughs> These don't sound like no, doable no, things. We, 
we want to keep these absolutely uh, cost effective for homeowners. Um, and the next thing to look at that's cost effective is taking a look at your furnace filter as well. Most people know where the furnace is in their house. Have you guys ever taken a look and changed your own furnace filter? Maybe I once. have, and I wasn't excited because mine was like one of those ones that's like $69. I thought it would be five. <laughs> <laughs> there is a price range depending, but it's also extending the amount of time in between changes. But before you turn that furnace on, change that filter. That's going to be cost effective to your furnace. The filter actually protects the components inside of the furnace. Protecting your air is just a secondary function of that filter. Okay. And, you know, and one of the tips that you had too for us, Michael, I like this one, the conduct an energy audit. Explain a little bit about what you mean by that. That you're going to have to reach out to your local energy auditing company. Um, as we continue to work from home, uh, you know, things like generators, getting those in your home can be important, uh, as well as we're using appliances more as Canadians continue to work from home. So having energy-efficient appliances in your house is going to help reduce costs on your electric bills, on your gas bills. So an auditor can come in and take a look and make recommendations on upgrading to things like Energy Star appliances and more efficient equipment. Great points. Thanks for your time this morning, Michael. We appreciate it. No problem. Take care. That's Michael Lopez, Operational Manager at Reliance Home Comfort. More online at reliancehomecomfort.com. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.